series of ash piles that he is in the middle of, he rises again. Ahead of an all but certain rematch, we'll talk to two acclaimed biographers about what they have learned about Donald Trump and Joe Biden. For Sunday, March 3rd, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Ahead, we will talk golf, basketball, and chess. Hearing about athletes showing great future potential at the top of their game and pretty far from the top of their game. We will also hear about the secret to good communication. Most people assume a conversation is about one thing, like your day or the kids' grades. But actually, every discussion is made up of different kinds of conversations. And a look at the world of film editing and how women have led the way in this field. I mean, there's so many amazing examples of women who worked hand-in-hand with the director. All those stories and more after these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. A delegation from the Palestinian group Hamas has arrived in Cairo for talks on a possible ceasefire in the war in Gaza. NPR's Jane Arap has more from Amman. Egyptian officials close to the talks confirmed to NPR that the Hamas delegation arrived Saturday night for talks aimed at agreeing to a six-week ceasefire with Israel. There's a push by mediators from the U.S., Qatar, and Egypt to get a truce in place before the start of Ramadan around March 10th. But there are still sticking points Israel and Hamas have not agreed on. Israeli media reports that Israel is waiting for a list of Israeli hostages taken by Hamas who are still alive before it sends a delegation. Hamas demands a full Israeli withdrawal from Gaza and also wants Palestinians to be allowed to return to the north of Gaza and for Israel to allow in much more humanitarian aid. Aid officials say Gaza is on the verge of famine after five months of war and the destruction of most of its infrastructure. Jane Araf, NPR News, Amman. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley says she may not support former President Trump if he becomes the party's nominee. NPR Sarah McCammon has more. Republican primary candidates were required to promise to support the party's eventual nominee as a condition of participating in debates sponsored by the Republican National Committee. But in an interview with Kristen Welker of NBC News, Haley suggested she'd been rethinking that pledge given former President Trump's growing hold over the party's infrastructure. The RNC pledge, I mean, at the time of the debate, we had to take it to where would you support the nominee and you had to, in order to get on that debate stage, you said yes. The RNC is now not the same RNC. Trump himself never made the pledge and has so far refused to participate in debates. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Haley was speaking there to NBC's Meet the Press. This air in Nevada region is forecast for another round of heavy snow between one to two feet starting tomorrow. That's on top of the knee-deep snow already accumulated after, over the past few days. NPR's Juliana Kim has more. It's been nonstop snow and strong winds in the Sierra Nevada. Those conditions are improving, but the National Weather Service says another storm is brewing, and that one will likely last until Wednesday. Over the weekend, tens of thousands of households in California and Nevada experienced power outages. The storm also forced closures at Yosemite National Park, several Lake Tahoe ski resorts, and a section of Interstate 80. Yosemite National Park reopened partially Sunday. The California Highway Patrol says it's unclear when they'll reopen the freeway. Juliana Kim, NPR News. And the National Weather Service has issued winter and blizzard warnings for parts of Northern California. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Massachusetts voters go to the polls Tuesday for the presidential primary. Today, a caravan of Donald Trump's supporters made its way from Charlestown to South Boston. Former Bristol County Sheriff Tom Hodgson is the Trump campaign chair in Massachusetts. He addressed a small crowd on Castle Island. You see people from New Hampshire coming down, Massachusetts uniting together. It reminds you of what America does when things are difficult. Trump's only challenger on the Republican ballot is former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. She held a rally in Needham last night. Boston Police Commissioner says his department is struggling to recruit new officers. Michael Cox tells WCVB's On the Record that it's difficult to find young people who are interested in law enforcement. We want people to have an interest in building trust with the community and in public service in general. But we need young people to want to join us. And, and we're, we're having a little trouble getting over this, whatever stereotypes that they might have about what we do. Cox says police departments in other communities are also having trouble hiring. Well, winter was one of the top 10 warmest in Boston. Boston's average temperature was nearly 4 degrees warmer than normal. We also picked up more than 14 inches of rain, 3 inches above average. And with just under 10 inches of snowfall, it was the sixth lowest in history. National Weather Service meteorologist Bill Letham says it felt even less like winter in central Mass. Worcester was the second warmest winter in its station history and its fourth wettest. They also did have um, lower than normal snowfall for the winter time frame, but it wasn't in the top 10 because uh, they were a little bit cooler there and they had some more like higher elevation snowfall that, that kind of helped them out through the winter. The National Weather Service put out its data on meteorological winter, which is December through February. And uh, speaking of the weather, the forecast for tonight, some patchy fog is possible, along with some patchy drizzle, low 40s, and then cloudy, low 50s tomorrow. Right now, 56 in Boston. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow, and chances are this November 5th might feel a little bit like Groundhog Day. After a set of decisive primaries, including Michigan earlier this week, it is looking like President Joe Biden will face a familiar foe this election, former President Donald Trump. A vote for Trump is your ticket back to freedom. It's your passport out of tyranny, and it's your only escape from Joe Biden and his gang's fast track to hell. This is not only a rematch, it is a contest between two men who have both occupied the Oval Office and also two men who have been in the public eye for decades. So what is there new to learn about the candidates at this point and how should we think about their track records and what another term would mean for the country? I put these questions to two people who have spent a lot of time learning about the former and the current president. Carol Lennig is a reporter at The Washington Post and co-author of the best-selling book about Donald Trump called A Very Stable Genius. And Franklin Foer wrote a biography about President Joe Biden called The Last Politician. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. All right, so I want to I wanna start with both of you about the mindsets of these two men entering this election. And Franklin, I want to start with you because right off the bat in your book, you talk about how being underestimated and dismissed is a core part of Joe Biden's identity. You know, he and his close advisors see it as a theme running through his entire career, and they think he often surpasses those low expectations. And to me, 
That mindset seems very relevant to this moment we are in, where you have all sorts of Democrats urging Biden to step down, step aside at the last possible moment, even if it's not feasible, and are thinking, why is this our guy? Right. So the question of why is Joe Biden running again, given his age and given the the stakes of this election? I think part of the answer has to do with exactly what you described, which is that He's run a a fairly accomplished presidency during his first term, and yet he gets no credit for it with the media. He gets no credit for it with the voters. And so this kind of deep yearning that he has to kind of grab everybody by the lapels to say, look what Mm -hmm. I've done, I think is a primary motivating force. But the other thing is, is that the idea that he would step aside in this highly unusual fashion, which incumbent presidents rarely do, like the flip side of that is that would feel like this big slight that he doesn't actually want to suffer. That would be this kind of mark against him. Yeah. And Carol, your book looked at the first few years of Trump's presidency, all of that turmoil and chaos and dysfunction. And and early on in the book, you write that two kinds of people went to work for the administration, those who thought Trump was saving the world and those who thought the world needed to be saved from Trump. And there's been so much conversation about the fact that if he were to come back into office, he would know how to staff his administration, he would have his policies in place. That second group of people you talk about would not be a part of the administration at all. How much do you think there is credence to that mindset that it would be an entirely different staff and that would make a big difference if Trump were to return to the White House? Absolutely. I think that Uh, The one thing Donald Trump has learned from his first presidency is not exactly how to govern, which is actually what a lot of presidents learn the first time through, like, I'm going to be a better uh, executor of my will. Mm -hmm. What he learned instead is I need to have more lackeys and loyalists. Um, Remember, there were people who were incredibly supportive of Donald Trump going into his White House. These people turned on Trump. They they basically didn't become his enemies, but they said, what he is proposing is so insane, I have to step in front of it. What Donald Trump has learned is he doesn't want any more guardrails. He doesn't want the risk of guardrails. Mm-hmm. I want to talk for a minute just about some, uh, some of the policy questions. Frank, uh, the, the war in Ukraine, the war in Gaza have really dominated the last year or so of, of Biden's presidency. Uh, We saw this week in Michigan just how many Democrats have deep problems with his policies in Gaza and how that could be an issue for him in November. Um, Going forward, both of these wars and and the way that he's engaged in them seem to be at this inflection point. Have you put any thought into what a second Biden term could mean for Ukraine or for Gaza? Well, foreign policy, I think, is the part of the job that he probably relishes the most. Talking to foreign leaders is his happy place. And I think, you know, going into a second term, it's very unlikely that Democrats are going to have control over both houses of Congress. So there's very little legislative possibilities for a second Biden term. I think that these wars are going to culminate in diplomacy. And so I think that that would be the thing that he would have to pour himself into. I mean, there's going to be some sort of diplomatic end eventually to the war in Ukraine and the war in Gaza. And he hasn't gotten a whole lot of credit for what he's done by creating the possibilities of normalization between Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states and Israel and a plan for rebuilding Gaza. But that confrontation to kind of force the Israelis into some sort of long term vision for coexistence is going to be, I think, the big question, the big confrontation that looms over 
the the rest of this year, but I think it would it would spill into a second term. Carol, in recent weeks, we've seen Trump question NATO again. We saw him be very reluctant to criticize Vladimir Putin over Navalny's death. What do you think the most immediate uh, consequences are for the war in Ukraine, for the war in Israel, if Donald Trump is sitting in the Oval Office again? I think most Americans are not paying attention in a keen way to what Donald Trump wants to do about NATO and what the consequences are. You know, again, there were there were guardrails stopping him in 2018 from walking away from NATO, which he threatened to do in a meeting in Brussels. You know, people with hair on fire who were his aides rushing literally down to the floor to try to intercede and make sure people understood in foreign diplomacy groups that no, 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 we're, we're not going to back out of NATO because you aren't meeting the 2% goal of defense spending. But Americans aren't focusing on that. Well, guess who right. is focusing on that? People all around the world. And leaders uh, listened to Donald Trump's remarks the other day about inviting Putin in and encouraging Putin to invade countries that um, are NATO allies with, uh, you know, a chill up their spine um, and planning for what they will do to create their own protection without the United States. I don't think we can say as we sit here today how this would affect what happens in the Middle East because Donald Trump will, again, probably make a gut decision that he feels benefits him the most. But with regard to Ukraine, it's very clear he's going to tell Putin, take it. Take whatever you want. Is there something else you'd like in that region? Go for it. I want to shift back to end the conversation on the election a little bit. And I want to ask both of you what I kind of think is each of these guys' superpowers. And Frank, I'll start with you. Relevant to this coming election and where Biden stands in the polls right now, you know, I think that Joe Biden has this unique ability to get people who don't especially like him or indifferent to him to come along and be with him at the last possible moment, whether that's passing legislation or whether that's going from the guy who's finishing a humiliating place in the New Hampshire primary to suddenly having the Democratic nomination wrapped up like three weeks later. Is, do, you think, is that, do you think that's a fair way to phrase his track record? Yeah, he's somebody who still believes in persuasion in a world that's incredibly polarized, where everybody tends to just shout at the people on the other side. But I think his superpower, if I were to describe it as such, is that everybody talks about his empathy and uh, the way that his empathy extends to somebody, a kid who stutters or to people who've just lost their parents or a spouse. But really, his empathy is kind of the basis for how he deals with foreign leaders and how he deals with senators, that he's able to shelve his ego, which, to be fair, is quite considerable, mm -hmm. and to kind of understand in an empathetic way, you know, what somebody's political interests are, what emotional baggage they bring to a situation so that he can conduct a negotiation. All of these qualities that are kind of so antiquated that make Joe Biden feel like a figure who's out of time are the, the ways in which he's able to make incremental progress as he's done over the course of the last couple of years. And Carol, I feel like Donald Trump's superpower is very different, but we are talking at the end of a week where once again, he seems to catch every break possible. He wins big in South Carolina and Michigan. The Supreme Court decides to continue the pause on the federal January 6th trial, making it possible that this trial might not even happen before the election. 
I feel like so often he skirts from the catastrophic uh, consequence at the last possible moment, either through luck or either through getting the people opposing him to be the worst possible version of themselves. We'll talk about a comeback kid, right? I mean, in every negative Donald Trump, and I mean this over the arc of his life, in every um, sort of series of ash piles that he is in the middle of, he rises again almost stronger, almost more vindictive, almost more, more empowered. Think about, you know, he's the only president who's been impeached twice. And he emerged from both of them um, more beloved by his supporters and, and more frightening in their private moments, Republicans will admit, more frightening to them because they are more chained ever to his base and his connection with that base. And that is is his magic. That was Carol Lennig, reporter with The Washington Post and co-author of the book A Very Stable Genius about Donald Trump, as well as Franklin Foer, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of The Last Politician, a biography of Joe Biden. Thanks to both of you. I guess we've got eight more months to talk about all of this. Thank you, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And uh, please stay with us. More of Weekend All Things Considered just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts with The Minutes. A small-town city council meeting unravels in Tracy Letts' darkly comic mystery, now through March 24th, theumbrellaarts.org. Listeners have the chance to attend open meetings of the WBUR Board of Directors and Community Advisory Board. Visit WBUR.org slash open meetings if you'd like to find out more. That's WBUR.org slash open meetings. WBUR supporters include the Davis Museum at Wellesley College. Lorraine O'Grady's exhibit, Both and, is free Tuesdays to Sundays through June 2nd. Wellesley.edu slash Davis Museum. Some patchy fog and drizzle possible overnight with lows in the 40s, clouds tomorrow, but again mild 50s. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Vice President Kamala Harris is calling on the Israeli government to do more to increase the amount of aid into Gaza, saying Palestinians there are suffering from conditions that are inhumane. She's also calling for a temporary ceasefire. She is scheduled to meet with Benny Gantz, a member of the Israeli cabinet at the White House tomorrow, about the situation in Gaza. Another round of heavy snow is forecast for the Sierra Nevada, up to two feet starting tomorrow, and that's on top of the knee-deep snow that's already fallen. There are avalanche warnings, and part of a major interstate was closed because of the conditions. And at the weekend box office, Dune Part 2 took the top spot with an estimated $81 million. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. From Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at ImaginableFutures.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ECMCFoundation.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. Palestinians who were forced to leave their homes in 1948 during the war surrounding the establishment of Israel ended up scattered around the world. There are now an estimated 6 million Palestinian refugees in the diaspora, most of them descendants of families who left their homeland 76 years ago and were never allowed to return. Jordan, which once ruled the West Bank, provides most Palestinians living there with citizenship. But as NPR's Jane Araf reports from Iraq, in many other countries, they have remained stateless for generations. These are Friday prayers in the Palestinian neighborhood of Beladiat in Baghdad. The mosque preacher, who is Iraqi, is talking about reclaiming Palestine, the ancestral homeland of most people in the neighborhood. Only the eldest here have ever glimpsed it. The worshippers leave the small mosque through a garden with orange trees and prized chickens. Muhammad, who is 86, is Palestinian, but a former Iraqi army general. He wears a blazer over a white turtleneck and holds a silver-tipped cane. He still has the bearing of an officer. Muhammad doesn't want his last name used because he also fought with the Palestine Liberation Organization during the Arab-Israeli War in 1967. He was posted in Gaza, in fact, and he says he would still fight if he could. I fought because I believe in my cause, and I still do. I am 86 years old, and if they would accept me and take me as a soldier, I would go and fight. Muhammad's family came from near the city of Haifa, then part of British Mandate Palestine. In the war in 1948, when he was four, the Iraqi royal family came and took the first group of Palestinians to Baghdad. Queen Alia came there and took the Palestinians who came from Haifa all in Iraqi army cars, and they brought us to Iraq. Some of Muhammad's relatives stayed in Haifa and are now Palestinian citizens of Israel. But while Israel allows anyone from anywhere in the world with a Jewish grandparent to live in the country, it bars Palestinian refugees from returning. Many have made homes in other countries, but it's not a homeland. Tell them that Palestinians in Iraq and Iraqis as an authority, a people, women, men and children, will continue to help and support Gaza so that Gaza will be the nucleus of the state of Palestine. Palestine is important to the Muslim world, not just because of a shared religion, but because one of Islam's most sacred sites, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, is in Israeli-occupied Jerusalem. The preacher, Rad Adnan, says he believes God will return the Palestinian homeland. But here, Palestinians are suffering. Uh, yes, they were born in Iraq. Their souls, their families, and their people are with Iraq. But the circumstances they live in are terrible. 
They can't travel. They don't have the right to buy homes outside these complexes. There are 10 people living in a space for four people. The brick apartment blocks nearby were built for Palestinian refugees in the 70s. But 50 years later, they're badly in need of repair. When it's raining, as it is now, everything floods. The late dictator Saddam Hussein launched missiles at Israel in 1991. When he was toppled by the U.S. and Iraq descended into sectarian war, Palestinians here, Sunni Muslims, were attacked by Shia militias. That's the crash of thunder and lightning flashing over this replica of the Al-Aqsa Mosque on top of one of the gates of what used to be Saddam Hussein's palace compound. He had it built in 2002, just about a year before the U.S. invaded Iraq. It was meant to symbolize that Saddam Hussein was the liberator of the Palestinian people. Iraq, like many other Arab countries, says it didn't give Palestinians full rights because it would jeopardize their ability to go home again. Iraq's parliament has agreed to allow Palestinians to buy property, but the law hasn't been implemented. Without the right to return, most Palestinians will do anything to get to other countries where they can build lives. Another refugee, Abu Mustafa, shows us his travel document. It's not a passport. He's not a citizen of any country. But if he had the money, it might get him to Turkey or the United Arab Emirates. In most other Arab countries, stateless Palestinians are banned. My friend, Palestinians here are in a state of disaster. People need aid, they need assistance, they need services. They have no power and no support, and they can't do anything. Abu Mustafa doesn't want to give his real name because he says it would get him in trouble with authorities. There's not much work for anyone here and even less for Palestinians. And because some Palestinians joined the militant Sunni group ISIS when it took over parts of Iraq, almost all Palestinians now fall under suspicion. Eight years ago, Abu Mustafa borrowed money to smuggle his wife and four children to Europe. Two of his children are in Norway, while another two are in Greece. He stayed to take care of his sister and hasn't seen his wife since 2016. As the rain drips on the roof, he shows us photos of grandchildren he has never met. Two of his children, who left as stateless Palestinians, are now Norwegian citizens with jobs and families. One of them came to Iraq to visit last year with his wife and young daughter. But when he went to leave, they said to him, what are you originally? He said, originally Palestinian. They said, did you fight with ISIS? And they held him at the Erbil airport for three hours. Now if I tell my children, come kids, let us see you, they say they won't come. Like many Palestinians, Abu Mustafa's family is scattered around the world. I have a brother in Australia. He died in Australia the other day. I have a brother in Sweden, one in Cyprus, one in Finland, one in London. My wife and children are in Norway. My sister is going to Germany. He still believes that Palestine will be liberated, not with the help of other countries, but because it's prophesied in the Quran. He says, God promised us, and he does not break his promises. Jane Araf, NPR News, Baghdad.
After nearly 12 years away from the game, golfer Anthony Kim is returning to the green. He teed up for his first professional tournament in more than a decade on Friday at a live golf event in Saudi Arabia. The return ends a long stretch of, if not quite a reclusive retreat from the game, enough of an absence that Sports Illustrated once called Kim golf's yeti. Injuries stretched into years and years and years away from competition and the spotlight. And Kim, who started his career so promising, seemed to be done for good until now. Andy Johnson is the founder of Fried Egg Golf, and he joins us now to discuss this unexpected comeback. Andy, welcome to All Things Considered. Hey, Scott. Thanks so much for having me on. So this is something that a lot of golf world is excited about, has been paying attention to, but I don't know if non-golf people know Anthony Kim's backstory as much. Can you explain just what was going on and where he was at his career when he went away and why he went away? Yeah, Anthony Kim uh, in the late 2000s, early 2010s was one of golf's most promising phenoms. He had a flair, he was really fun to watch play, and he had extraordinary talent. Um, he won a, uh, a handful of times. He won the 2008 Wachovia Championship, the 2008 AT&T National, and then the, the last win of his career was the Shell Houston Open in 2010. Um, he was becoming one of the most popular players in an era that was kind of the end of Tiger Woods' dominance mm -hmm. um, over the sport. So he had become one of these names that was thrown around as the next big thing. So... In 2012, he had some injuries that kind of forced him to step away from the game. And then, you know, we really haven't seen him since. The long rumor was that Kim had uh, taken in an insurance policy mm -hmm. on his body. And the insurance policy paid him out a, you know, eight plus figure sum of money. And if he ever played in a professional tournament, he'd have to pay that back. So that kind of explained the absence and the injuries there were a lot of them he had an achilles problem a wrist and hand injury a back injury um all these things mounted and you know with the insurance rumor you know he was just gone yeah and you mentioned that the insurance policy has often been a rumor speculation but i mean you mentioned tiger woods before tiger woods is one of many examples of people who have gotten so many injuries and have mounted comebacks each time or tried to get back in the game. Did Kim ever try to return to the PGA Tour, or was it just kind of like, there he went, where'd he go? Yeah, it was It was kind of like, there he went. You know, really, like, the thing that's amazing with Anthony Kim is, is during this 12-year stretch, he's been glorified. It's always been the looking back on the great Anthony Kim years and, oh, it'd be amazing if he came back and played and social media would go crazy at even the rare picture of Anthony Kim. You know, th this guy went completely into hiding. There were, you know, uh, only a handful of pictures in the last 12 years of Anthony Kim in public. Okay, so here's the, the turn in the conversation, though, because there's this really intriguing backstory. There's all of these questions. And like you said, the golf world just kind of speculated about him for a decade. Now he's back. How has this tournament gone so far? Yeah, so he's back with the Live Golf League, which mm -hmm. um, is the Saudi Arabian-backed golf league that's really disrupted the game of golf. It's it's taken a, a substantial amount of talent away from the PGA Tour. And the avenue in which that they've taken this talent is that they have offered them guaranteed contracts. So if you think about Anthony Kim 
and how he could possibly return to the game is paying back that insurance money. So a league that offers upfront money could potentially get him back, and and that seems to be the case of how they've gotten him back. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's been away from the game for 12 years. Not surprisingly, it hasn't gone great. I, I do have to ask, has Kim ever directly addressed the the insurance policy speculation? He hasn't. And this week he didn't talk to reporters. There was just a few videos that were out and, you know, him talking about this is all about golf. I'll I'll talk about my story getting here yeah. at a later date. What are your realistic expectations for him as he plays this season in the live circuit? I think they're pretty low. I, I I've I've been thinking about this for, you know, since the rumors started and uh, a few months ago. I don't think any professional athlete has taken 12 years off a sport and come back and had success. Yeah. The game's changed a lot since he's 38 years old now. Um he's had a lot of injuries and, you know, he hasn't been training or or practicing at the level uh of these other athletes, not to mention when he left, he was a young player in a sport that was getting younger. The sport's only gotten younger, faster, stronger, and now he's old. Now he might get faster. He's going to get less rusty. He's going to improve, but it's hard to imagine that he would ever, you know, it would take a long time for him to crack where he might be one of the 200 best players in the world. Yeah. Uh, right now, you know, based off of the results of, of this first tournament are what you would expect if you took a, a top level, you know, 38 year old amateur who plays at a at, at a local club and put him in the tournament. That's Andy Johnson, founder of Fried Egg Golf. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. And sticking to the world of sports, another day, another major record for Iowa basketball superstar Caitlin Clark. All Things Considered has been keeping tabs on Clark this season, and we are happy to report she is now the all-time scoring leader in Division I college basketball, women or men. Today, a few weeks after smashing the women's scoring record, Clark surpassed basketball icon Pistol Pete Maravich's record of 3,667 points. She did it in her last regular season home game in a win against Iowa's Big Ten rival, Ohio State. It's been a big week for Clark. Earlier, she declared she will enter the WNBA draft once the season ends. She'll almost certainly be the number one pick and play for the Indiana Fever. But first, there's the Big Ten tournament and, of course, March Madness. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. So when I was eight years old, I'm pretty sure my obsession circled around hockey and the Muppets. But other eight-year-olds are different. Take Ashwath Kaushik. Kaushik is obsessed with chess. Not only that, he is so good at it that he recently won a chess game against a 37-year-old Grand Master. This sets a new world record for youngest player to beat somebody of that level. And it leads to a question, how does an eight-year-old get so good so quickly? Mike Klein is the voice of ChessKid.com. He's also the voice that Kashik heard nearly every day when he would practice online. And he's joining us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks, Scott, for having me. So how does an eight-year-old get so good at chess that he's beating somebody at that grandmaster level with decades of experience? In a word, technology. When I was eight years old, chess was very much played exclusively in the over-the-board realm. 
And nowadays, kids can log in, watch instructional videos, get games against top players all over the world any hour of any day. Uh, any given moment, there's more than 200,000 people playing chess online on various chess websites, including Chess Kid. And uh, there's just no barriers to access to information or top quality games. And my understanding is that this record was actually a pretty recent record when Ashwath broke it and that another eight-year-old had recently said it. Like, how many younger kids are we talking about at this point are tapping into this online community and getting these, these advanced skills? More kids than ever are playing from around the world, including from communities and countries that may not have historically had a strong chess culture because, uh, again, this leveling of access to all the information has made it so that, well, our longtime Norwegian world champion, that was nothing when I was growing up. Norway was not a hotbed for chess. And uh, India, especially where Ashwath was born, although he did grow up in Singapore, um, they have had such a resurgence of, of teenage talents. They've got four of the best 20 players in the world that are all teenagers right now. So that's kind of been a really nice thing to see is these uh, different communities learning and availing themselves to the game. I know you've talked to Ashwath and his family. Could you tell us about how his parents are supporting their son, how they're encouraging this habit that he's very, very good at, clearly? Yeah, in fact, the mom takes him to most international tournaments, which is a little bit of a departure. Often we we see chess dads as being the ones, uh, being the chaperones, but he travels internationally a lot. You know, he lives in Singapore, but he broke this record in Switzerland. Interestingly, he has not yet gone the way of homeschool. A lot of young chess talents, they give up on regular schooling because they're traveling so much. So kudos to Ashwath for still having a regular school life and somehow fitting in all of this chess. But Singapore is starting to develop a little bit of a chess culture, but ultimately Europe is still the place to be for all aspiring players. So that's that's a pretty long haul flight to be getting to Europe so often. While we have you and while people are listening to this conversation about chess and maybe thinking, should I give it another try? What would you say to somebody who's who's trying to pick it up again, but just intimidated? Well, first of all, don't be, because uh, I can tell you that the average rating on Chess Kid and on Chess.com is much lower than the public thinks. Chess is a lot like golf, where you can play really poorly, but have that great shot on 18, and that's what you come away with. Uh, and I want them to think of chess like that. Even if you only win a small percentage of your games, there's beauty in the game. And the more you get into the game, the more you'll realize what kind of moves and ideas and patterns give an aesthetic pleasure. And uh, in some ways, I envy those people because unlike me, a lifelong chess player, they should not have a lot of results-oriented focus. They should just have enjoyment focus. So there's players of, of every caliber, and uh, I think that if they get back into it, they'll get some of the beauty out of the game. That's Mike Klein, the voice of ChessKid.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm John Carpilio. Up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour, and tonight a conversation with a journalist who had a conversation with President Biden. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. There could be some patchy drizzle, maybe even a bit of patchy fog overnight. Temperatures in the low 40s. Cloudy, low 50s tomorrow. Still a mile 56 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. 
Coming to City Space Monday, March 11th, James Beard Award-winning chef and TV personality J.J. Johnson to discuss his new cookbook, The Simple Art of Rice. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. A Supreme Court decision could come as soon as tomorrow on whether the Colorado Supreme Court was right in kicking former President Donald Trump off the ballot because of his actions after he lost the race to Joe Biden. Colorado is one of the states participating in Super Tuesday when voters in 15 states and one U.S. territory make their choice for a presidential nominee. Iowa's Caitlin Clark became the lead scorer in NCAA basketball history today in a game against Ohio State. The record-breaking moment came during the seniors' last regular season game with the Hawkeyes. And the Iditarod got underway today in Alaska. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. If you walk down the self-help aisle in a bookstore, you are likely to see a lot of titles encouraging you to add something to your life, to start a new workout routine, to optimize your schedule, to balance your budget better, to introduce a healthy habit. And then you might see Charles Duhigg's newest book, which is not about adding to your life. It is about improving something that we do constantly every single day. And that is speaking to each other. His book is called Super Communicators. Charles joins me now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me on. You write in the book early on that this was a little bit of a selfish pursuit on your part, that you realized that maybe you weren't communicating well and you you put some thought into it? Yeah, I fell into this bad pattern with my wife where I would come home after a long day and I would start complaining about my day. Mm -hmm. And she very reasonably would suggest like a solution, like, why don't you take your boss out to lunch and you guys can get to know each other better. And instead of being able to hear what she was saying... I would get even more upset. I'd be like, why aren't you supporting me? You're supposed to be on my side. And then she would get upset because I was attacking her for giving me good advice. I just, I feel like that actually, that exact spousal dynamic has repeatedly come up in interviews that I've done over the past year on a wide range of subjects. People, yes. either they are the suggester or they are being suggested to. And even though it makes sense that that's helpful, it's not. Right. It's a conundrum, right? Why does this happen? And, and so I called up all these experts and I asked them and they said, what we've learned is that most people assume a conversation is about one thing. Like we're talking about your day or the kid's grades. But actually, every discussion is made up of different kinds of conversations. And, and they tend to fall into one of three buckets. There's emotional conversations where I talk about my feelings. There are practical conversations where we might talk about how to solve a problem or, or how to plan for the future. And then there's social conversations, which is about how we relate to each other and the social identities that are important to us. And they said, you have to have the same kind of conversation at the same moment to really connect with each other. And when you came home, you were having an emotional conversation and your wife responded with a practical conversation. And both of those are legitimate kinds of conversations. But unless you're having the same kind of conversation at the same moment, you're unlikely to really hear each other. And 
I was attracted to this book because, you know, as we are doing right now, the bulk of my job is to have conversations with people. But that is a hard thing to do. And I will say sometimes these days I feel like I'm better at at work than at home, (laughs) which is something to work on. (laughs) But I think the point is that that's hard to sustain, right? I feel like you can go into one conversation. This is an important conversation. Maybe it's with your boss, right? Maybe it's with, with your spouse about something important and you can be thinking I need to be present in this conversation. I need to listen. But doing that day in, day out, moment to moment feels really hard to do. And yet there are people out there who are really good at this. Yeah, yeah. There are these super communicators. And and we all have moments of super communication, right? When we we know exactly what to say to a friend to make them feel better or what to say in a meeting to kind of get everyone over to our side. But you're exactly right. There are some people who can do this consistently. And, And one of the things that I suspected at first was that it was really exhausting for them, that they just had more energy than I did. But I found out that's not exactly right. Because our brains have evolved to be so good at communication, because it's something that's so important to how humans became humans, when we learn the right habits around communication, it tends to take up less energy. It tends to become easier. And there's some really easy tactics or tools that help us do that. And and one of them you repeatedly write about is listening. And that's that's so interesting to me because... This sometimes comes up when I'll talk to like journalism students, you know, like like what's some advice? Well, listen to the people you're interviewing, right? Like it's it's a basic <laughs> thing and yet so many of us are bad at it or don't do it. And over and over again you point out that the people who are successful are actively listening, are reading other people's cues, are actually hearing what people are saying and responding and tweaking their response based on what they're hearing and taking in. That's exactly right. And sometimes we have to prove that we're listening, right? It's not just enough to absorb what someone's saying. Or sometimes we have trouble listening because we get distracted in our own brain, even though we don't want to. And there's actually a technique that they teach at Stanford and Harvard and a bunch of other schools that's really powerful for this, which is known as looping for understanding. And what it says is when you're having a conversation with someone, start by asking them a question, right? And there's some questions that are more powerful than others. And after they've responded, repeat back to them in your own words, what you heard them say, prove to them that you're listening. And then the third step, and this is the one usually we forget is, ask if you got it right. And the reason why that's so powerful is because not only am I showing this other person that I genuinely want to understand what they're saying, I'm genuinely paying attention, but it also forces me to pay attention because sometimes we want to listen and we get caught up in our own heads about what we want to say next or what we disagree with. But if your assignment in a conversation is to listen closely enough that you can repeat back in your own words, showing you've processed it, what this other person said, it's almost like you're tricking yourself into listening more closely. And I'm going to resist the urge to repeat back to you what you just said right now, because this is, this is self-conscious to do during an interview. But uh, do I have that right? <laughs> you got it exactly right. You're, you're doing great. <laughs> How much do you think phones have changed the way that we communicate in a relatively short period of time? Well, it's interesting. So when telephones first became popular, like 100 years ago, there were all these researchers who said, we will never be able to have real conversations on a telephone because we can't see each other. And what's interesting is at that time, they were right. If you read early transcripts from telephone conversations, it's people basically using it as a telegraph, you know, sending over like grocery orders or stock purchases. Now, of course, by the time you and I and everyone listening was in middle school, we could talk for like seven hours a night on the phone, right? It was some of the most meaningful conversations of our life. And what's happening right now, I think particularly I have young kids. I know you have young kids. Our kids are learning how to use texting and Snapchat and emojis to be real conversations. Now, the key, though, 
is that you still have to pay attention to how you're communicating. You have to remind yourself that an email is different from a text, is different from a phone call, and there's different mm -hmm. rules for each one. And if I want to connect with someone, I have to remind myself and pay attention to what those rules are. That's interesting when you're talking about that study about early phones. Like I'm thinking about early movies where people are clearly just acting like they're in a stage production in front of a camera and it's, yeah. it's awkward. And then we, we figured out how that entirely different form works and people adapt it. Exactly right. But the more we use these things, the more we learn to use them, the better we get because our brains have evolved to be good at communication. We look for opportunities to connect with other people because connection feels so good. What, from what you learned about super communicators, is useful for trying to have a political conversation in this current moment? I think the most useful thing, and actually there's been a bunch of studies that have proven this out, setting your goal not to convince them to change their mind, but setting your goal rather to simply understand what they're saying. Because we have this innate need as humans to engage in reciprocal vulnerability and reciprocal authenticity. And so if I'm really trying to understand you, if I come to your house and I say, look, you know, I know that you voted, you know, for the Republicans, or I know that you're against gay marriage, or I know that you hate Donald Trump. I don't want to convince you right now of anything different. I just want to understand. I want to understand from your perspective, why is this important to you? Like, what are, what are you seeing here that matters to you so much? Inevitably, what that person is going to talk about is that they're going to talk about how they see the world and their frustrations or their hopes and aspirations. They're probably not even going to talk about a political candidate. Instead, they're going to talk about how it feels to be American right now. And the truth of the matter is that once they share that with us, we can share with them from our perspective how it feels to be an American. And, and they're going to listen because we've listened to them. That's so much easier to accomplish. That means that even if you walk away from a conversation and you still disagree with each other, but you understand each other better, then that conversation has been a success. And all the while, I thought that the key to changing somebody's mind politically was to personally attack them on social media. Wow, I had it all wrong. <laughs> you know, people are testing it pretty actively. <laughs> yeah. So one, one last question for you. Uh, and maybe this is unfair because you spent a lot of time researching this book. You spent several years writing it and, and putting it together. But if you could distill everything you have learned about communication into a one-line mantra, the next time that we could say it to ourselves, maybe when we're in an argument or a tricky conversation, what would that be? It's a great question. And I think that mantra for me personally is just try and connect. And it's hard sometimes to remember to connect, right? You're you're in an argument with someone. All you can think about is, you know, they're so wrong and I'm so right or I'm so angry or mm -hmm. I sure do hope that their guy doesn't win the election because it's going to be terrible. Or you're talking to your spouse and you're talking about something hard. You're talking about something where you disagree with each other. It's so easy yeah. to get focused on that conflict. But if we connect with each other, that connection becomes your primary goal and it makes everything just a little bit easier. That is Charles Duhigg, whose latest book is called Super Communicators. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It is a week until Oscar night, and Hollywood is buzzing about who will take home Best Actor, Best Director, Best Movie. What about film editing, though? It's a category we tend to think about less. You're probably not going to recognize any editors walking the red carpet next week. But it is a vital role. No editing, no movie. And from the earliest days of filmmaking, women have often been the ones behind the scenes shaping award-winning films. NPR's Mark Rivers fills in the picture. You're going to need a bigger boat. Jaws. Toto? I have a 
feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. The Wizard of Oz. They call it uh, Royale with cheese. Pulp Fiction. All Oscar-nominated films, all iconic, and all edited by women. Film editing is one of the most important jobs in putting together a movie, but it's not the job that gets you on the cover of magazines. The fact that editing is supposed to be invisible, which has contributed to editors not being visible, is what makes it such a great craft. Sue Friedrich is a filmmaker and former professor at Princeton University, where she created a database cataloging films edited by women. Basically, you take thousands of feet of film, you know, hundreds of shots of different scenes, whatever, figure out what the best take is, what's the best performance, what's the best moment in that performance, and make it all flow in a way so that when we're watching something, we stay completely in the story. When you do it really well, nobody's noticing what you've done. One thing Friedrich noticed in her research is that a lot of those invisible editors, going all the way back to the very beginnings of Hollywood, were women. Women were hired for that, I think in many ways, because it seemed like a, a job that women did the way women did sewing. You know, they're good with their hands, this sort of ridiculous idea. Friedrich says while this notion pushed women out of other jobs in the industry, like directing and cinematography, editing, or cutting as it was called then, was seen as unglamorous, almost secretarial work. It proved to be an easier entry point for women in the industry. It also gave them a lot of creative control. They were pretty much on their own making all of the really crucial decisions. One of those powerful editors was Margaret Booth, who began her career helping D.W. Griffith pioneer revolutionary editing techniques. Margaret Booth is sort of the titan of female and all editors, I would say. Erin Hill is an assistant professor of media and popular culture at UC San Diego. She said legendary MGM studio head Irving Thalberg actually coined the term editor because of Booth. She's one of the people that really helps to create this kind of invisible style of classical Hollywood, believing that editing or cuts should be invisible so they aren't obstructing the action. There was also Anne Bauschenz, who worked with director Cecil B. DeMille, Sue Friedrich again. She edited 41 films for him, and the Academy created a new category in 1934 for best editing, and six years later, she won the Oscar, and she was the first woman to win it. To compare, when Catherine Bigelow became the first woman to win Best Director, it came 81 years after the first directing award was given. I mean, there are so many amazing examples of women who worked hand-in-hand -hand with the director. And most of these women, I mean, their credits, they edited 50 films, 75 films, 100 films. Friedrich says a lot of that work went uncredited. And as the craft became more popular, more men entered its ranks. But female film editors have remained a prominent force in movies, working with some of the world's most celebrated filmmakers. The Osage, the time is over. We got to take back control of our home. Killers of the Flower Moon marks Martin Scorsese's 22nd collaboration with Thelma Schoonmaker, who's won a record three Oscars for film editing and is nominated again for Killers, making her the most nominated editor in history. But the frontrunner for the award may be Jennifer Lane, the editor for Oppenheimer. We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. Lane thrilled at the challenge of making all those dialogue-heavy scenes in a three-hour movie move like action scenes. When I was editing the movie, I really wanted to make sure that those scenes that are with Strauss and the Senate aide, and it gets into the weeds of stuff, that certain lines popped. Another part of her job, of any editor's job, is to help shape the performances, to know which take best serves the scene. 
Consider the moment Killian Murphy's Oppenheimer reveals the tragic fate of his former lover to his wife, Kitty. I found her yesterday in the bath. Who? She's taking pills. Ten versions of that performance are amazing. And for the longest time, we had one version where he's like staring at her and he's looking at her. And and then we realized, you know what? I think it'd be better if he wasn't looking at her. And, you know, he had more shame. And it was so it's just this just constant tweaking. Hilda Rasula, who edited Best Picture nominee American Fiction, says her job is about realizing the director's vision. You're kind of a midwife to the film, you know, you're helping them realize that vision in the best way you can and seeing it through to the very end until it gets born. I noted the gender connotations of midwife to Rasula, and while she doesn't see anything inherently gendered about being a film editor, she also isn't surprised that so many of the trailblazing editors in movie history have been women. I think it's not a coincidence that it is a role that requires an enormous amount of empathy, feeling the chemistry of what happens between two people, three people on screen, and understanding human nature. You know, women are raised to be fairly social creatures, I think. So, I mean, I think this is a skill that maybe is inherent, not to all women, but to, um, to the way women are raised in our culture. But Rasula said men still make up most of the editor's guild. We're still very much a minority, <laughs> um, unfortunately. A 2023 USC Annenberg study found that throughout Oscar history, 14% of Best Editing nominees have been women. That's compared to the less than 2% of the Best Director nominees being women. Aaron Hill puts the onus on the industry to provide more opportunities for female editors. They would be greatly helped if we did more to recognize the structural and the kind of cultural barriers to advancement. And that takes a lot of inward looking. It'll also take Hollywood making the invisible craft of film 